Glad you could be with us. We're continuing our, or finishing our series uh, on relationships uncensored. And I'm excited uh, to, to bring it home uh, this week. And we're talking about Netflix and chill. And some of you saw this on social media and you had no idea what Netflix and chill meant. And you're like, why is that on a condom wrapper? Um, and, uh, and so this, this, let's just start with a little bit of an educational piece here. That uh, every generation comes up with kind of phrases uh, to describe sex that is different than that which their parents knew. So if you have a son or daughter and they're texting or typing, hey, do you want to get together on Netflix and chill? Warning sign. They're not talking about movies. Right? They're talking about rotating the tires. And if you were in here last week and you don't know what rotating the tar- tires is, they're talking about uh, whoopee. They're, they're talking about... I, I'm not going to answer that. But whatever we call it, it's, it's been happening for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Since the creation story in Genesis... Uh, Sex has been a part of the human story. And so here we have it in Genesis. And Adam and Eve watched Netflix and chilled. And if you're not sure what that means, look at the next sentence. It says, and she became pregnant. So Netflix and chill led to pregnancy. And so in the NIV, you know, they may not use the new Matt translation there, but the the new international version says, uh, Adam and Eve made love. The NLT says Adam and Eve had sexual relations. The New King James Version says Adam knew Eve. They knew each other. Really, really well. And that, when the Bible talks about knowing, it, it's, it's talking about intimacy. And so call it Netflix and chill. Call it rotating the tires, making love, sleeping together knowing each other. You can give it a new name, but it's nothing new. It's been happening since the creation of the world. Yet we still have a hard time talking about it in an honoring, normal, yet sacred way thousands of years later as Christ followers. And that's what I want to do this morning. I, I think our world tries to normalize sexuality in a way that it takes away its sacredness. And I think the church, out of fear of losing the sacred part of sexuality, has I choose just to not to talk about it. And I wonder if we could talk about it in a normal way and yet a sacred way, our kids wouldn't have to come up with code names and words and phrases to talk about it to hide it from the parents. So this morning we're going to start big picture, and then we're going to go small picture, and then we'll end in the big picture. Big picture in the beginning. The creation story describes darkness and chaos. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit was hovering over the waters. So God starts and he brings light and he brings light into darkness. He brings order into chaos. Whenever the Bible talks about water, it's typically, or or the oceans or waves or uh, like, like we see here over the surface of the deep, that's usually quite metaphorical in, in the ancient Near Eastern culture for talking about evil and chaos. So here we have God's spirit above the chaos, above 
disorder hovering over the waters. And God brings order into chaos. And so this is what we have in the creation story. Day one, God creates light. And we see in verse four, he says that it was good. Everybody say good. Day two, verse 10, God creates the sky. And God saw that it was good. Day three, God creates the dry ground, the land, the sea, the plants, the vegetation, the trees. And he looks at it, he says, it's Day four, separation of day from night, sun, moon, and stars. And he looks at what he created. He says it was, you guys are getting good at this. Day five, God creates the animals, living creatures, birds in the air. And he looks at it, he says it was. And then finally on day six, God creates mankind. And he looks at everything after he creates everything. And he says it was very good. Very good. So God takes this dark, chaotic reality, material reality, and he starts forming it and, cre- and making it, uh, in cre- creating order out of chaos. He's taking darkness and moving it to light. And after he's done creating these things, we, we, we have another account of a creation story uh, that kind of echoes the Genesis 1 story, but we, we, we read in Genesis 2, that it is not good. Everybody say, not good for man to be alone. And so this is like the, the, the writer of Genesis just wants you to zero in on this point. The God was creating order out of chaos. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. And the only thing not good in the creation story was that man was alone. That man was isolated. Genesis 2, starting in verse 22, it says, Then the Lord made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman. And if you translate the Hebrew of woman, it's, Oh, man. And that's, that is an actual translation. I'm not even lying to you. She's going to be called, holy cow, that is amazing. She's so hot. She'll be called woman. She was taken from a man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This is a beautiful moment in the creation story. God creates man, saw it was not good for him to be alone, creates this woman, and he brings these two separate entities and he brings them into one. And the order of the creation story is critically important, and we're going to talk about why that is. But who is created first, humans or animals? Animals. And remember, the creation story goes from order, from chaos to order. God is creating something beautiful in an ongoing way. You guys know that symbol, right? When uh, Lisa and I first got our, we, we first got married and we moved into 
in an apartment building up by Mount Royal. She had always wanted rabbits. She wanted pets. And we had like a little 600-square-foot apartment. And I'm like, where are you going to put these pets? And she said, I'll put them out on the deck. So we had this deck that was out looking at the soccer field, the Mount Royal. And uh, so she went to Kijiji, and she found a deal for two rabbits, two female rabbits. So we bought these two female rabbits. We put them out on our deck. And uh, they just had a lot of energy. And we would be trying to sleep in the, the, our deck. The window to our deck was like right behind our bed. And, uh, and these rabbits just made tons of noise all the time. And uh, we remember going out uh, one day, and there was uh, this liquid stuff all over our deck, all over our windows. Um, and Lisa's like, the rabbits peed everywhere. And I said, I don't think that's pee. It wasn't pee. It turns out it was a male rabbit and a female rabbit. And they had babies. They knew each other. They Netflixed and chilled. They did... The rabbits did what rabbits do. They had animal instincts. Now, these animals are going to mate because that's in their DNA. It's in their blood. It's, it's, it's who they are. But they're different than humans. They weren't lying out on the deck thinking, I just really want you to know, rabbit. I, I want to know that it, I, I want you, I want to know if you love me for more than my body. They weren't having that conversation. They weren't talking about how they're going to make a difference in the world. They weren't contemplating that. They, they, they weren't complaining and saying to the other one, you know, I just feel like you're not as committed to this relationship as I am. That's not a conversation they were having. No, they were rabbits, and rabbits do what rabbits do. Paul talks about this animal instinct, and he, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you say, I'm not allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm not allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. So that, that was a phrase that was being used. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. So the phrase, you know, the food is made for stomach and stomach for food, was kind of this way of describing uh, the human hunger, thirst, desire, craving for sexual activity. And so the Corinthians would just say, you know, they were sleeping around together, there was sexual immorality in the church, and they said, well... You know, when I'm hungry, I eat. When I have sexual urges, I act on them. Basically, what they're saying is, I want to honor my animal instinct. Paul is saying, that's not proper. That's actually not good for humans to function like animals. Can't say our bodies are made for sexual immorality, they were made for the Lord. It's different. We use animal language to talk about sexual activity all the time. Well, those two, they totally attacked each other. She's a cougar. Party animals. Basic instinct. We use these, these phrases to talk about sexual activity, and they're, they're animal type of phrases. But the bar in the Bible is not set 
in terms of the animal kingdom, God has created us for a different kind of kingdom. He created us to be human beings. We were created after animals. In the same way, we can veer toward the animal impulse. We can also veer towards the angel impulse. And the one is actually just as destructive as the other. If the animal impulse is to give in and let our cravings rule us, the angel impulse is the exact opposite. It's the denial of the physical and the failure to acknowledge that our sexuality is central to what makes us human. Rob Bell talks about this in his book, Sex God. In the book of Job, it's written that when God created the world, all the angels shouted for joy. Sorry, uh, yeah, when God created the world, all the angels shouted for joy. And in the book of Psalms, it's written that God made humans a little lower than the heavenly beings, which is, again, a reference to the angels. The book of Hebrews says that the angel is a spirit, a spirit with no living body, no physical essence. Marriage and sex and procreation simply aren't a part of the angelic existence. An angel is a being with a spirit but without a body. You know, the previous symbol, that playboy symbol, this founder was Hugh Hefner. And he was once asked a question about his upbringing. He said, I was raised in a setting in which sex was for procreation only and the rest was sin. What's he saying? He's basically saying, I was raised by parents who were pretending to be angels. I was raised by parents who wanted me to be an angel. And as often happens when we are so far on one side of the pendulum, the next generation will swing the pendulum the other way. He continued later in the interview, our family was Puritan in a very real sense. They never hugged. Oh no, there was absolutely no hugging or kissing in my family. There was a point in time when my brother later in life apologized to me for not being able to show affection. That was, of course, the way I'd been raised. I said to her, Mom, you couldn't have done it any better. And because of the things you weren't able to do, it set me on a course that changed my life and changed the world. So Hugh Hefner responded to this expectation to be like an angel and deny his sexuality to the point of moving towards an animal and saying, there actually is no bar. There is no sacred. It, it, you can just act out on your animal impulses. And it isn't difficult to understand this reaction given his upbringing. He was denied something central to what it means to be human, and that is affection, intimacy. And so the rest of his life was actually a journey reacting to his upbringing. In reaction to denial, people often end, head to the other end of the spectrum. I think too often the church is trying to raise angels instead of humans. But equally often, the world is actually trying to encourage us to be animals instead of humans. When we deny the spiritual dimension of our existence, we end up living like animals. And when we deny the physical, sexual dimensions of our existence, we end up living like angels. Angels and animals. Two very different extremes. Two Two, both are equally destructive because God didn't make us to be animals and God didn't make us to be angels. He actually made us to be human. Now, forgive the only male picture there. Uh, it's the only one I could find that actually uh, worked. Uh, but picture that there's a female there. It's just a representation of male and female. 
How we live matters to God because God made us human. So going back to the creation story, we know that angels were created before man. We know that animals were created for man, before man. Everything we do is actually moving backwards or moving forwards. In the creation story, people are created after animals. From the rest of Scripture, we know angels were created after um, humans. Or sorry, angels were created before humans. The movement in creation is away from chaos and toward greater and greater harmony and order and beauty. When we act like angels or animals, we're acting like beings who were created before us. We're going backwards in creation. We're going the wrong way. We're headed toward chaos and disorder, not away from it. In the creation story, Genesis chapter 1, it says, Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. So you notice that God is using this communal language, to be like us, which scholars have talked to for ages, but we know that God is a community. That God himself, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is a community. God creates us in that communal image. They will reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. God created us to rule over the animal kingdom to bring structure, to bring order out of chaos. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. I believe what it means to be made in the image of God, at least in part, is that we partner with God in the ongoing creation of the world. That the creation story was not the end of the creation story. It's the beginning of the creation story to which God has given us authority, dominion, responsibility to partner with him in what he's doing. Scholars believe that the word sex is related to the Latin word secare, which means to sever, to amputate, or to disconnect from the whole. This is where we get words like sect, section, dissect, bisect. Our sexuality, I believe, then has two dimensions. First, our sexuality is our awareness of how profoundly we're severed and cut off and disconnected. And second, our sexuality is about all the ways that you and I try to reconnect. In the creation story, humanity was made to live in harmony in four directions. And I've, I've preached on this many times, and I will continue to, because I think it's foundational to understanding what on earth are we here for? Who are we? We were created to be in right relationship with God, in right relationship with others, in right relationship with self, in right relationship with creation. Connection. We were created for connection, for harmony. Our sexuality is all the ways we strive to reconnect with our world, reconnect with each other, reconnect with God. In the beginning, God created us in connection. He created us as sexual beings in four directions. We need to redefine sexuality to mean more than just an animal activity. In fact, they're very, very sexual people that have no sex whatsoever. Because they live very connected to God, to others, to self. We also know that there's people that are having lots of sex that are isolated and alone. 
I mean, in Amsterdam, there's the red light district, which is famous for its immorality, its sexuality, prostitution, the sex industry. Sorry, I said sexuality. It's not famous for its sexuality. It's famous for the sex industry. Is there a lonelier place on the planet than the red light district? Is there a less sexual place on the planet than the red light district if sexuality is defined as actually intimacy and connectedness? This is because sex was never intended to be a search for something missing. It was always intended to be the expression of something that was already found. In Genesis 2, 24... It says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This, is refer- th- this section, this idea is referred to a number of times in Scripture, one of them being Matthew 19.5. Jesus says, haven't you read? He replied that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be un- united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. It's a phrase I say at all the weddings I do. What God has joined together, let no one separate. But it happens. I believe that this idea of oneness is actually a part of our biological makeup. There's a chemical called dopamine. And it's It's available to your reward circuitry in your brain. It's the same thing that you get from uh, heroin and other drugs, except those drugs might be 10, 15 times the amount of what we get in sex or in orgasm. But in sexuality, uh, or when when two people are having sex, that is the highest release of natural dopamine to the human body. Dopamine rewards you for risky behavior. Dopamine is released when... I'm screaming down the hill on my mountain bike and I think, and you think that was insane, but there's a party that just wants to go and do it again. And then you break your wrist for the fourth time in two years. And people say to you, have you learned your lesson yet? Are you going to get back on the bike? And I say, of course I'm going to get back on the bike. There, there's, a, there's exhilaration, there's a rush, there's, a, there's an aliveness that happens when I'm on that bike. And so there's a reward system inherent in your body that happens. And sex is the highest release of dopamine, natural release of dopamine. And the dopamine is released to three different areas of the brain. The nucleus accumbens, which registers pleasure. The prefrontal cortex, which controls social behavior, thinking, controlling actions. And the amygdala, which remembers everything it used to get the thing that it likes so it knows how to do it again. And so what happens in sexual activity is that you have dopamine being released. You have endorphins, ankyphalans. You have oxytocin, which is the bonding chemical. Everybody say bonding. Okay, I just had to see if you're with me. This is, this is a really quiet place this morning. Uh, I said before I started the pre-service prayer, I like talking about sex and money because I know people are listening. Uh, Oxytocin is a bonding chemical. This is what's released uh, in, the, in the mother during the pregnancy and birthing uh, seasons. 
And so when the mom has a baby and the baby looks like E.T. and she says he's just so beautiful and everybody else in the world says, are you looking at the same thing I'm looking at? <laughs> Honestly, I didn't really like my kids for the first few days until they, they, they started to look cute and I'm like, okay, I think, I think they're likable. But Lisa was in love with them from day one. Oxytocin. There's a bond. There was a bond that happened. So you have dopamine, you have oxytocin, you have, you have vasopressin, you have all these uh, things that are happening in the brain to create a bond. I, we used to live in Cranston and we were on this kind of circular street. And, uh, and it was one of those streets that never, ever got snow plowed. Any of you guys live on those streets? You're, you're getting frustrated this time of year right about now. And I remember it got to the point where, you know, there, there was parking on one side, both sides of the street, and there was two tire tracks, right? And it was just a big circle. And so if you were going the wrong way in the circle, uh, it was bad news. But I remember I could actually drive around an entire block without touching my steering wheel. I'd go like this, push the gas pedal, and the car would just go around the tracks, go around in a circle, Because tires went over those same tracks over and over and over and over again and it reinforced the tracks that were there before it. And it went again, reinforced the tracks that were there before it. Went again, reinforced the tracks that were there before it. To the point that I didn't have to manage it anymore. This is a picture of what is happening in your brain during orgasm, during sexual activity. There is a bonding, a forming that happens. Think of it like duct tape. You know, duct tape, you stick it to something, it bonds. And you rip it off, you stick it to something else, it probably still bonds. You rip it off and stick it to something else, and what's going to eventually happen? It's not going to stick anymore. You know, in our culture, people are reacting, responding, engaging uh, in all sorts of sexual expression whether it be another person, an image, a screen, different partners. But God actually created us to bond with one. Isn't it cool that the very thing that God is asking of us, he actually created us for? Yet the potential of harm is so great because you can imagine what happens when we bond with multiple partners. We bond with multiple images. We bond with multiple experiences. And then you get together in a marriage relationship and you're trying really, really hard to, to make yourself one, but you've actually divided yourself multiple times already before that moment. Is it a wonder that we have such a difficult time in our culture being faithful to one when we've actually trained our brain to do something differently? This is actually affirmed throughout Scripture. Exodus twenty-two sixteen: If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged to anyone and has sex with her, he must pay the customary bride price and marry her. Now let's get over some of the barbaric references here uh, and, uh, and acknowledge that the further back you go in history, the more women were, were treated like possessions, which we know is not true. There's a, there's a redemptive movement throughout Scripture that says that's not actually the case, that men and women were both created in God's image, equal. Yet, 
In that culture, if a man were decide to have sex with a virgin, he must pay the customary bride price, which had to be paid to her father, and he must marry her. What is it saying in Exodus? It's saying, that ain't free. You don't get it for free. If you want it, you got to marry her. Deuteronomy 22. 28, 29. Suppose a man has intercourse with a young woman who is a virgin but is not engaged to be married. If they are discovered, he must pay her father 50 pieces of silver. Pay up. Then he must marry the young woman because he violated her and he may never divorce her as long as he lives. What is this saying? Sex is covenant. Sex is bonding. I used to teach... Uh, in the comm class in high school with the Calgary, Calgary Pregnancy Care Center, uh, we used to talk about, uh, we used to encourage abstinence in the high schools. And so I get to go into public high schools and talk about uh, what I believe God's designed for sex, uh, which is kind of fun. And, and so we'd ask this question. We'd ask the kids, what's the highest relational commitment that two people can make to each other? And typically they would say, Marriage at the top of the triangle there. What's the highest physical commitment that two people can make to each other? They would say sex. And, and then we would talk about, okay, let's, let's, let's talk relationally. How do you, how would you get to the point of knowing relationally you would want to marry somebody? And so we talk about dating, you know, we talk about, you know, different conversations, different markers kind of along the way. You know, all the steps that would actually lead someone to want to be married to somebody. And then we would talk about all the physical progressions that would lead up to sex, which I'll, I'll spare you the details, but you can imagine where those conversations go in a high school classroom. Um, and so they, they would just talk about all sorts of physical activities that would lead to sex. And then we would talk about this, this question. Where typically is sex introduced into a relationship? And often, in their world, their expectation was that sex, that the triangle would look like that. That sex is actually on the front end of a relationship. That you don't really need to know anybody more than you know that you're barista at your favorite Starbucks in order to engage in sex with them. And multiple partners was not really seen as a bad thing. And our goal when we taught in the high schools was to try and convince high school students to choose better. You know, we weren't saying abstinence is the only way, but we, you know, because we couldn't say that in public high school, but what we could say was make that triangle more balanced. Can we recognize that marriage and sex are actually one and the same in Scripture? That our culture loves this idea of casual sex, but there's nothing casual about it in Scripture. It's sacred. We should talk about it like it's normal, but it's sacred. It's easy to take off your clothes and have sex. People do it all the time. But opening up your soul to someone, letting them into your spirit and thoughts, the fears, the futures, the hopes, the dreams, that is what being naked is also about. 
This is why when people sleep together after they've just met, the chances statistically of the relationship lasting are very, very slim. That's why when I do marriage counseling with couples, one of the first questions I ask them is, are you sleeping together? And even if they are, I will ask them not to sleep together up until the wedding. Why? Because your relationship needs to be built on something more than sex. True intimacy, true sexuality, true, in, true nakedness is far more than sexual activity. And racing ahead of this progression always costs something. And I want to give a little word to the 25 and unders, to the high school. We got some 25 and unders in the room? You can put up your hand. All right. Let's give the 25 and unders a hand here. Put up your hand if you're sitting beside your parents this morning. This is a great, this is a great moment, isn't it? Parents are going to do you a favor right now. Physically, sexually, a human being is fully mature and developed as a teenager. Obviously, girls earlier than guys. But third, in the 12 to 15 range. Mentally, the side of their brain that understands consequences doesn't fully develop until they're 25. This means there's about a 10-year gap. If you're under 25, there's about a 10-year gap that you have where your body is telling you something that your mind cannot compute. That your body is encouraging you to engage in activity that you have a difficult time understanding the consequences and the trajectory of that activity. Yet, how many sexual decisions are made by people before they're 25? If we honor the animal instinct that our culture says, hey, just embrace it, just go for it, we are making decisions of high consequence that were intended to be of high blessing but can have high negative consequences when we separate them from their intended purpose. Casual sex. The Bible doesn't promote this idea. Sex is a covenant. The Bible talks about sacred sex. And that doesn't mean we don't talk about it. That means we should talk about it, particularly as Jesus followers. The Jewish wedding practice affirmed this idea. In the first century, people who were married, people got married young. A young woman would marry at 13 or 14. Young men would approach the woman's father about the interest in marrying her, and then there would be a celebration and the potential groom would offer the young girl a cup of wine to drink. And she could accept the wine. This was her choice. So potential groom, father-in-law, say, hey, I want a Netflix and chill. Father-in-law says, well, it's actually up to my daughter, but uh, I think you're a good young man. Why don't you come over? We'll have a party, and she can make the choice. And so he offers her a cup of wine as a sign of the covenant. Does that sound familiar? And then she could say yes. She could take the cup. It's her choice. Can you imagine her saying no at that party? You invited all your friends, all your family. That's like, that's like the classic football, basketball game uh, proposal that where the guy gets rejected. Have you guys seen that? It's awesome. <clears throat> if she says yes, they would wait probably for about another year. They have to prepare the groom has to prepare. The bride has to prepare. The families have to prepare. But importantly, the 
The groom actually has to build something. The groom goes home and begins building an addition onto his family's home. You think your kids are living with you too long. I'm telling you, you should be lucky that you're not living 2,000 years ago where they actually built onto your house and they lived with you. They had a different idea of family and community then. Whole family units would actually live together. And so the groom, if the bride says yes, would go home, work with his dad, preparing a room, preparing a part of the house that would be intended for them as a married couple. But it's the father's home who decides when it's time, when everything's ready. So the father inspects the work, checking out the quality. And he may have other sons who are also building on addition. So, so you can imagine that this, gets, this, this process gets a little bit complicated. The houses can get pretty large. There are many rooms in it. It was called an insula, a large multifamily dwelling. The future bride also doesn't know when this work will be done. So she's preparing herself. And around the time of the wedding, she would, the custom would be that they would have, a, they would have a oil and a lamp and they would leave it lit at the window because the, the, the bridegroom would come at any point and that would, uh, he would actually initiate the start of the wedding. She wouldn't even know her wedding day. Brides, can you imagine not knowing your wedding day? And there's another parable that actually alludes to that, which we don't have time to get into. Jesus uses. So he goes to her with friends, with family, a giant processional. So the wedding party would lead them to the new residence and they would enter. So he would go to the, the bride and then they would go to their new room, the place that they had built, and the whole wedding party would follow them. Can you imagine your wedding night? Everybody follows you to your hotel room, waiting outside, waiting. And then they would exit. That was dramatic. Exit. They would exit from the room, and everybody would cheer. Why? Because they were married. Why? Because they had sex together. Because they consummated their marriage. Because they covenanted. Remember that sex was spiritual, physical covenant that bonded the two together. With all the guests waiting outside, they would celebrate this covenant, which to me, to me just seems extra crazy. I mean, I, I don't even like the idea of gift openings after the wedding night. I, I remember when Lisa and I got married, I was like, are we going to go home and, and do the gift opening? I'm like, there's no way I'm looking your dad in the eye after a wedding night. I, not, it's not going to happen. I need at least a week buffer. Let's go on the honeymoon. We'll come back. <laughs> Even that was hard. But this is like the moment. You're like, walk out of the door. They're there. So back to the engagement party. When the bride chooses to drink the glass of wine, usually the groom at that point would give some kind of speech. My father's house has plenty of rooms. I'm going to go build one. I'm going to come back and take you to be with me so that you can be where I am. Does that sound familiar? And so when she takes a glass of wine at their engagement party and, and drinks from it, the groom says to her, I'm going to prepare a place and I'm going to come back for you. In John 14, Jesus says this, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? 
When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I am going. And that's where Jesus goes into that whole uh, part that you probably know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When Jesus wants to assure his followers that they're going to be okay and that their future is secure, that they shouldn't let their hearts be troubled, he uses the wedding metaphor. He uses a sexual metaphor. He uses, because he understands sex as covenant. He understands sex as a forever thing. He understands that this, what we talk about as sex on earth, is just actually a, a glimpse, a window into the eternity that Jesus invites all of us into. The Gospel of John talks about miracles as signs. Well, sex itself is actually a sign. Sex is actually prophecy. You can tweet that. Sex is prophecy. Sex is pointing to something beyond itself. Ephesians 4, verse 28. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. You might think, what does that passage have to do with sex? Well, let me tell you. Have you ever heard a wealthy person say, having money won't make you happy? Has anybody heard a wealthy person say that? Okay, every time I hear that, I'm like, ugh, puke in my mouth. Let, 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 give me your money and let me try. Let, let me try. But we know that it's true. We know that millionaire after millionaire, billionaire after billionaire, celebrity after celebrity has talked about the fleetingness of wealth. Money can be an idol whether you have it or whether you don't. Is that true? Some of you don't have money. And all you can think about is how much better your life would be if you could just have some money. Some of you have lots of money and you just can't get enough of money. I believe in a proper context for sex. I believe it's a gift when handled correctly. It can be a beautiful thing and it can be destructive when handled loosely. I believe that sex can be an idol whether you're having it or whether you're not. Some of you aren't having sex and you're thinking, as soon as I can just have sex, then my life will be better. And some of you are having lots of sex and you're still not satisfied. That's what idolatry is. But the, the answer to idolatry is never rules. It's always worship. So here, Paul is talking about materialism. He's talking about if you're a thief. He says, if you're a th thief, quit stealing. There's the rule. And so often the church stops at the rule. We say, you're having sex? Stop it. Don't do it. It's bad. It's not true. That's not true. It's not bad. But it does need to be contained in God's design and God's purposes. And I think what we need and, and what Paul does here is brilliant because he doesn't stop at the rule. He doesn't just give a rule. He actually replaces it with something greater. He says, instead, use your hands for good hard work and give generously to others in need. It's not just about not doing something. It's actually about the why. It's about the bigger picture. I don't think our young people, and it's not just young people, I don't think our world needs more rules from the church. I think what our world needs is a better dream. You need to know that sex is pointing to something. If you're having sex, good for you. It's not the end point. 
As long as you think it's the end point, you're going to be disappointed. If you're not having sex, good for you. It's not the end point. As long as you think it is, you'll be disappointed. The end point is the union between heaven and earth. It's the consummation between Jesus and his bride. Every sexual expression on this side of heaven is a prophetic act. It is a, it is a sign that's pointing to eternity where we will be ultimately connected with God, with self, with others in the way that God intended. John, the one who wrote about Jesus returning and coming like a bride that we just read about, writes about this cosmic marriage union in the last book of the Bible. It's a vision of God coming and taking up residence. It's a vision of our sexual longings actually coming to fulfillment. We read in, the Reve- in Revelation that this city, this place of residence, does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light. Well, light exposes things. There is no hiding. Light shows what, how things truly are. There's freedom. There's nothing to fear. In light, everybody is known fully for who they are. Which is what people crave in sex, isn't it? To be known fully. And even when you're known fully that you're still accepted and loved, still embraced, embraced, John says that nothing impure will enter this heavenly city. Isn't that what sex is supposed to be for people in the greatest moment? This, this free from power, coercion, free from manipulation, free from everything that's impure. Two people giving all themselves to each other, holding nothing back. We read also in the city that there's a tree of life, that the leaves of the tree are, no, are for the healing of the nations. There's no war. There's no conflict. There's no strife. There's harmony between all of humanity. Isn't that the dream of any relationship? Isn't that why people try relationships over and over and over again, even though they get hurt over and over and over again, because they hold out hope that maybe they could be accepted for who they are? All of us connect with each other in this revelation picture of this city. All of us connect with each other in one giant, global, united embrace. In this city, there will be no longer any curse. The curse is referring to the entrance of death into this human story in the Garden of Eden. The curse is everywhere. Even the best relationships have an ache to them because we all know inherently that our relationships here on earth will not last. But John gives us a picture of heaven and says, there's a time coming when it will last forever, that the curse will be gone. There will be no more death. For many people, sex is a brief moment when everything is okay with the world, even if it isn't. It's a moment to escape from pain and suffering, to to feel those The dopamine rush. It's a short time when all is right. In Revelation, God announces, I am making everything new. I would say, isn't that the longing of every embrace, every act of love, every sexual activity that we find sex so powerful because it provides people with the glimpses into a world that we all desperately desire but can't seem to create on our own. And C.S. Lewis says, if you have desires in your heart, in your life, that nothing on this earth can fulfill, maybe the answer is that we were created for another world. And I would encourage you this morning to go beyond rules, to go beyond right and wrong, to go beyond animal instinct or angelic response and realize what it means to be human. Being human means to embrace your sexuality, to embrace that you were created to connect with God, to connect with others, to be, to be comfortable in your own skin, 
to recognize that there's always going to be something lacking on this side of heaven. And that lack should cause us to point our eyes forward, to look for a relationship that is beyond the horizontal ones that we often try and fulfill those longings with. That Jesus, the bridegroom, said he's coming back and he's going to prepare a place for you and me. He said that all of your longings, all, all of that being known, being connected, being accepted, is actually going to happen in the future. What happens when everything we need from each other we have in God? What happens in the presence of God when we are everything we were originally created to be? If marriage is meant to show people what the oneness of God is like, what happens when everybody is one in the presence of God? Perhaps sex is a picture of heaven. This marriage between a man and a woman, this having sex is about something much bigger than the relationship itself. It points beyond them to somebody else, to God. The point of marriage isn't marriage. The point of sex isn't sex. It's a picture. It's a display. It's a window that we look through. It's something that God created, an ache and a craving that God created us with that will never actually fully be fulfilled on this side of heaven. Would you stand with me if you are able? If you're basing your sexual decisions on rules that you were given by the church because they just wanted you to act like an angel, I would say, I would ask you, what does it mean to actually be human? What does it mean to actually take your eyes off the sexualization of our culture and say, I'm going to look at my sexuality as actually a window into my spirituality, to what it truly means to be human. I hope that you get captivated, captivated by this dream. That Jesus is the bridegroom and he's come for you. And just like those bridegrooms in scripture that went to the father, their future father-in-law and said, I want to marry your daughter. And the father said, well, there's a price to be paid. Jesus paid it. With his death and resurrection, he did everything he could do to be married to you and me. And he tells us and he tells you that he's coming back and that every longing and every ache that you have will be fulfilled when he comes back. And in the, meaning, in, in the meantime, if you're someone who is fortunate enough to be in a marriage relationship and fortunate enough to have sex, it's just a picture of the end. Even think about this week. When we talk about fasting, we fast from something because those urges and those cravings um, actually awaken us to our ultimate need in knowing God. And if you're someone who can't actually express their sexuality in God's design for whatever reason that might be, that craving and that intimacy, don't allow that to drive you away from God. Instead, allow that crave and that urge to point your eyes to Jesus and say, hey, I have some intense cravings and urges in my life and I recognize that I was created for something more that I look forward to the day when Jesus returns and we'll make everything right again and make all things new again. We're back in Eden, completely united in harmony with God the Father, completely comfortable in our own skin and in proper relationship with one another. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you 
Thank you that you paid the price to walk into marriage relationship with us. Lord, I pray for perseverance. I pray for courage. I pray for perspective. Lord, every person in this room has their own sexual story. And I don't know each story, but I know that each one of their stories is ultimately a reflection of our constant desire and urge to be fully united and whole with you. Lord, we look forward to the day when those longings will be ultimately fulfilled. Give us grace and courage and perseverance in the meantime. In Jesus' name, all God's people said. ideal and where we currently are is this a sense of shame. And Jesus' death and resurrection, resurrection actually came to remove shame. It came to remove that gap between God's ideal and where we currently are. And I've fallen short of that ideal. Without knowing you, my guess is that you have too. And you might be thinking in a talk like this, it's like, well, oh shoot. When I think about my history, my story, you know, the ruts in my life, are, they go pretty deep. I've tried and I tried and I tried to actually change the direction of this car and it's never, uh, it never works. As we're worshiping there, I just saw this, uh, this image of, of springtime, you know, the, the ruts that I used to see in my my block and how the the sun would start to come out and the weather would start to warm up and the ruts would start to melt and you were able to navigate the vehicle and maybe in a bit more free way than you were before I just think that's a beautiful picture of actually what God's grace does regardless of the ruts that you've created the decisions that you've made regardless of of how that, how you've expressed your sexuality maybe in, in destructive ways that, is, that have hurt you or hurt others. Jesus brings light and Jesus brings warmth and Jesus brings grace and Jesus brings a new day. And he invites you into that new day. And sometimes we can get oversimplistic in church and just say, you know, Jesus is just going to make it all go away and that's not quite true. Sometimes there's decisions that we've made that are hard to undo but God's grace and his presence will go with you. Sometimes we actually have to do the hard work. We have to get out in the road. We have to chip off the ice. We have to partner with what God is doing. We have to partner with the warmth that he's bringing into our lives. And we have to do some hard work in cleaning it up. Maybe you need to do some hard work. Maybe you're in a marriage and it means going for counseling. And that sounds like a swear word, but it's a beautiful word. If it can actually strengthen that relationship. Maybe there's some addictive patterns that you've had that you've wanted to break and you need to actually bring other people into that journey. If you need other resources, we as a church would love to help you get connected to the place where you can 
actually find freedom. I'm just going to invite you to keep your eyes closed. Um, I want to pray for you. Jesus, we thank you that you are in the business of making all things new. Lord, I thank you that you fill the gap. That there's an ideal that you created for us as as humans that none of us in this room have fulfilled. That we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Yet, your response, God, was not actually to run away from us, to punish us, but you actually took the punishment on yourself and said, I will step in the gap and I will close that gap Jesus you yourself became the author and perfecter of our faith you became our ideal and thank you Jesus that when we place our faith in you there is grace sufficient for us so I just pray that your grace would wash over each and every person in this room over their past over their relationships over their decisions over the things they've done to create ruts that they wish they could get out of that they don't know how to get out of that they would hear your voice saying my grace is sufficient for you Lord, we thank you that you invite us to partner with you in what you're doing. And so I pray that we wouldn't be content just to look forward to the day when you're coming back, but to actually work with you today because you are here with us through your spirit. So Lord, I pray freedom in this place for those that are looking for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. We invite our prayer teams forward. If you'd like prayer for anything, um, that's an opportunity that's always available for you at the end of the service. Uh, and uh, we have starting point week four happening, hearing God this afternoon. Next week, we start a new series called Long Story Short, where we're going to take 13 weeks and go through the whole story of the Bible. Um, it's going to be awesome. So we invite you back next week. Thanks for coming.